pick called I.A. Richards, which some of you may have heard of. He represented a whole attitude to aesthetics between the two world wars when he declared that poetry is capable of saving us. Richards, too, saw a society in crisis with scientific discovery having outpaced the human ability to understand life as meaningful. For him, the solution was what has been called a psychological aesthetic, poetry supplying what he called pseudo-statements to satisfy the problems of the human psyche. But, by many other accounts, any notion that reading can save us died the death with World War II and the realization that Nazi officers were often well-educated people who loved classical music and good literature. As the notoriously ironic Terry Eagleton puts it in Literary Theory and Introduction, has anybody read anything by Terry Eagleton? Good. I was going to say, if not, why not? You really have to discover this guy. He's probably the biggest literary critic in the world today. A Marxist and a covert Catholic. Uh, very interesting in response to Richard Dawkins, interestingly enough. If you go on uh, YouTube, on the web, and find out what he has to say about Dawkins, you'll be stunned. So, notoriously ironic. And he said, when the Allied troops moved into the concentration camps to arrest commandants who had whiled away their leisure hours or leisure hours to you, with a volume of Goethe, it appeared that someone had some explaining to do. Since then, the theoretical turn in the humanities subjects of the last 50 years has made at least academic readers suspicious of values that purport to be transcendent when they can arguably be shown to carry racist and sexist and class-based attitudes of their generally white, male, upper-class progenitors. Who exactly were the us whom poetry could save? Might saving, in fact, have meant rendering them harmless through indoctrination into the dominant value system? In any case, those of us who stand in the tradition of the Christian meta-narrative know that it gives a particularly clear explanation of how it is that human beings are not all sweetness and light. That's actually a phrase that comes from Matthew Arnold. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Apostle Paul is at pains to get the supposedly learned, aka you and me, to ask ourselves, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And then there's Peter. Clear that it is the life and death and resurrection of Jesus which constitutes the stone which was rejected by the builders but which has become the head of the corner. And there's the salvation in no one else. For there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So, from an Orthodox Christian perspective, it seems to be well attested to by both political and cultural history, as well as by scripture, that a liberal arts education cannot in and of itself save us, either individually or collectively, whatever the great educationists of the 19th century may have hoped. But, I like doing that. This is not to say that the humanities and education in the humanities is not enormously important in the nurturing of the good society. The Christian story teaches that human beings are not only fallen, you know this. Here's David singing that human beings were created just a little lower than the angels and God has crowned them with glory and honor. What's more, not only were they made in the image of a beneficent and caring creator, they were also given a mandate that has not been rescinded to take pleasure in and steward the creator's world. So, what kind of education does that suggest? Of course, it's not only the religious reader, and we have to be careful about this, who wants to nurture an appreciation of the humanities. In fact, in some religious circles, and some of you may come from such circles, there is still active suspicion of the imagination. It's potentially subversive, you know, it's dangerous. It may lead you down all sorts of stray paths. 
um, which makes very strange bedfellows, actually, of the religious on the one hand and the strictly utilitarian on the other. Any of you who've read Dickens's Hard Times will remember the um, comic teacher, Mr. Gradgrind, who teaches his students, a horse is a graminivorous quadruped. You know, he's very, very uh, practical and utilitarian in the way he works. Comes to a bad end, I should say, in the story. Anyway, um, obviously perspective and worldview then are going to be vital in any decisions we make about educational focus, but audience matters too. Here's something from the 2012 MLA, um, Modern Languages Association, roundtable on making a case for the humanities. I was fascinated by this. They said, these academics, academics in the humanities need to make common cause with those individuals who value approaches to life and learning rooted in reflection, interpretation, engagement, self-knowledge, and profound abiding curiosity about culture and all of its historical and geographical variety. Wouldn't you say that implicit in that statement is the suggestion that anybody who doesn't fit into this rubric is in need of a very good dose of the humanities to change their attitudes? I mean, do you know anybody who's not interested in reflection, interpretation, engagement, self-knowledge, and profound abiding curiosity? And if so, why are they in university? You know? Uh, anyway, with these things in mind, I think first of a 1967 essay by an influential literary critic called Wayne Booth. He's actually a humanist and from a Mormon background. In this essay, is there any knowledge that a man must have? And please note it's 1967, which is why he's using the word man in that way. He wouldn't get away with it now. Booth explored the assumptions about society and human nature behind various different models of education than in play. See if you recognize any of these, or if you've experienced any of them, or if you're a professor, if you have perpetrated any of them, okay? It is possible, says Booth, if you see human beings as basically stimulus response systems like machines, to conclude that the purpose of education is to transfer information from one kind of a machine to another. Paolo Freire, in a book, a very famous book, called Pedagogy of the Oppressed, those of you who are in education, if you haven't read this book yet, then you will be reading it later, I'm sure, 1970s. He talked about the banking concept of education. And he said, you know, in the banking concept, the teacher's task is to deposit in ignorant students the gift of his or her own knowledge. It's a version of that same mechanized exchange, right? Freire argued that this kind of model of education can serve the interests of oppressive regimes. Why? Because it prevents critical thought. It dehumanizes people into automatons. Booth continued, it is possible if you see human beings as basically sophisticated animals, to understand the purpose of education as a sophisticated kind of conditioning. The human rat in the maze of life. Do you ever feel like that after a class? Don't say yes, but just think about it. Okay. And it is possible if you see human beings as basically members of social groups whose needs have to be met to understand the purpose of education as training human ants to fit the necessary social niches so that the system can continue. Now, insofar as Freire's banking concept of education produces people who are adapted to their social environment, it also fits those models of education in Booth's schema, the organizing of or conditioning of rats for a maze or the socializing of ants for an anthill. But there's a fourth option. If, said Booth, you see human beings as mysterious ends in themselves, as his own worldview led him to do, then education will be more than any of those things. It will help teach human beings how to think for themselves, how to experience beauty for themselves, how to choose their actions for themselves. On that understanding, then, education is much more than content transfer or rote learning, or certification for a job. If you are in university for any of those three reasons, 
implies Booth, then you are not being treated as a full human being. You're not treating yourself as a full human being. On the understanding that human beings are mysterious ends in themselves, then there's a whole sequence of interactions and processes and responses that we need to think about. Going back to Eagleton for a minute, in his book, After Theory, he provides a very provocative gloss on this idea. He says, when he's talking about virtue and the good society, and he says, do I have this up here? Let me see. Oh, I do. Good. He argues that Christians, Marxists, and classical moralists, by which he means people who come from the classical traditions out of Aristotle and the ancients, all of these people share this same belief. We live well when we fulfill our nature as an enjoyable end in itself. Christians, Marxists, and classical moralists all agree, he says, on this one idea. Well, then, attaining that end in itself is much more exciting and much more dangerous than programming machines or conditioning rats or training ants. For, as you may have noticed, human beings have wills and will make decisions for themselves, which will affect not only themselves but also those around them. I was actually reading on the way up here yesterday in the car a book by uh, ex-Archbishop Rowan Williams. I'm an evangelical Anglican, so that's my tradition. And he was discussing the Desert Fathers in this book. And he points out that human beings also have some learning to do to find out what it means to fulfill their nature. Um, if you're interested in that idea, then look for the book, which is called Where God Happens. Okay. An age like ours, particularly if you're in the academy, if you're a student or an academic, is very theoretically conscious. And we are going to critique Booth's concept of humans as mysterious subjects, because that lies at the root of perhaps all traditional understandings of liberal arts. But I would say we could argue if the human is understood not as a mysterious given, but as a construct of his social circumstances and his ideologies. Any of you who've read any Althusser will know this notion of the ideological state apparatus that creates you as a certain kind of being who will only drive down the right hand, I mean, the correct side of the highway in order not to get crashed into by things coming the other way. You know, That's the way our state apparatuses work. Um, if you think that the person is just constructed by those kinds of apparatuses, then those images of Booth that are rejected of humans as sophisticated rats or society as a sophisticated anthill have a lot of power. And then those images need to be exposed. We need to be conscious of them. They're not descriptions of the inevitable position of the human being. And in that case, it's really important in education that we understand the ways in which ideologies construct us, make us. Uh, Freire again, banking education treats students as objects of assistance. Do you feel like an object who's just being assisted through school? Problem-posing education makes them critical thinkers, he says. Banking education treats students as objects of assistance. Problem-posing education makes them critical thinkers. I want my students to be critical thinkers. I don't know about you, how you feel about your education. I would rather you went out of your university degree knowing how to think critically than having your mind full to bursting with information. I think it's more important that you learn how to think. Okay, here's a note of caution. Oh, sorry, that was Freire. And I even had a picture of these people. Just for entertainment, Alan. Let me give you a note of caution. If we look back to the Judeo-Christian recognition of human waywardness, that's to say sin, waywardness is a more polite word, you know, than sin. That's supposed to be a joke. Um, perhaps we need to recognize that education in the humanities can actually be dangerous in the hands of unscrupulous people. 
I remember a soul-searching moment when I was teaching at the University of Ottawa, center, uh, the capital city of Canada, in case you don't know. <laughs> uh, anyway. Um, I was teaching a course in rhetoric and persuasive argument. And I suddenly realized that I was giving my students lots of examples of powerful writing that might provide them with effective tools for manipulating and cheating people. Perhaps then, going back to those Brazilian prisoners, leaving prison with an enlarged vision of the world because of your rich reading experience might involve similar dangers. Isn't it a matter of both worldview and will? If your worldview already supports an ethic of truthfulness and empathy and care for the poor and a general attitude of service and good stewardship, then perhaps reading books that enlarge your vision of the world will result in your understanding these issues more deeply and choosing to act on them more fully. On the other hand, if your worldview, and I certainly know students like this, supports the notion that your individual rights are the most important factor, and that life is a business of getting for yourself as much as you possibly can, getting away with it as much as you possibly can, however you can, then any good humanist, let alone any good Christian, would recognize that both your worldview and your will need converting. And even then, seeing how to act wisely and ethically doesn't automatically result in our living that way, does it? I'm sure you've noticed this. In our actually being in any active sense better people. We all know it's a very big step from theory to praxis of actually doing what we believe to be right. Okay, so we've got to re-educate our desires. Eagleton is the one who reminds us that for Aristotle, the task of an ethical education is to re-educate our desires so that we reap from the pleasure from doing good acts and pain from doing bad ones. He says that's what an ethical education is about. Apparently, a simpler sense of the connection between seeing, seeing and doing is alive and well in Brazil, it seems, doesn't it? Those working with that Redemption Through Reading program seem to have a clear conviction about why they should bother with the humanities in a time of crisis. How about the rest of us? Can the humanities re-educate our desires? I first started working on this topic in the summer of 2011, I'd been asked to write an article for the Christian journal Comment, subtitle Public Theology for the Common Good. Back then, it was UK prisons that were more on my mind than Brazilian ones. As I began the article, there had been four nights of rioting, looting, and burning in London. Twitter-fed copycat riots in Manchester, Birmingham, Leicester, and other places. And earlier that very summer, I had spent two weeks in London with my husband, um, happily wandering those busy and peaceful streets. Now, businesses, livelihoods, whole neighborhoods destroyed, and even some loss of life. I had to ask myself, what went wrong? One young rioter, female, interviewed on CBC News, said, we wanted to show the police we can do whatever we want, and now we have. Another male said, it's just a bit of fun. But if you look at this picture to the right, that's a store owned by someone who had nothing to do with anything to do with any of these things. And that is typical of what went on in London in the summer of 2011. The world news that summer was full of stories about the devastating effects of famine in East Africa, the mess of Mubarak's corruption trial in Egypt, a military crackdown on pro-democracy groups in Syria. Things haven't changed very much, have they? The world teetering on the edge of the second major recession in three years. Understandably, the question on everybody's mind seemed to be, well, what to do? Some analysts looked primarily to a stronger police presence in London. The politics of diplomacy and economic sanctions in the Middle East courageous business deals in the US. 
Others, while pouring food aid into East Africa, looked to, for the scientific possibilities for long-term drought control. And there were others who were inclined to factor in societal causes as well as effects. Began, they began to look seriously at an underclass of disadvantaged youth in the UK and elsewhere who feel powerless to move on with their lives. This, I think, is something that we can identify in Canada and perhaps you can also in particularly perhaps this part of the US. There was gloomy talk about the me generation that is evidenced, at least in the West, by a society where looking out for number one is the overarching goal. But no one doubted the crisis-ridden times. And almost two years later, no one doubts the continuation of these crises now, do they? Even in countries where the streets seem peaceful or where warfare is not being fought with guns and tanks, there is ideological warfare or economic warfare going on. So, what am I doing teaching English? The question needs to be answered well. My discipline, discipline of English, recognizes that it needs to re-describe itself to capture the public imagination. Here is somebody, Bruce Burgett, the chair of the National Advisory Board for Imagining America. Did you know there was such a board? An advisory board for imagining America. The idea blows my mind already. Anyway, he said, one reason the humanities may represent themselves as not being able to find an audience is because they cannot imagine a future. Think about how important the imagination is in that comment. The imagination is key to thinking about the future, says Burgett, and that the humanities haven't done very well in talking about this. Do I believe in redemption by reading, I myself? Or am I concerned that reading isn't much use, or even worse, potentially dangerous, regardless of whether it reinforces or undermines the status quo? And how in the middle of such crises am I expecting my students to respond? Okay. In times like these, and with questions like these, I find myself returning to a piece composed in the first months of World War II by C.S. Lewis around our house, because my husband is a specialist on C.S. Lewis, we call him Saint C.S. Lewis, but you don't have to agree with that part, that's okay. Anyway, this talk that he gave was originally a sermon delivered in the autumn of 1939 in the University Church of St. Mary the Virgin in Oxford. It was called Learning in Wartime. In it, Lewis addressed the students who had not gone off to war, but were still students, still meant to be reading and learning and thinking and writing, still, as he put it, fiddling while Rome burns. So he's talking to a church congregation, and that means he can assume some commonality in worldview and ethics. Lewis argued that there's a bigger question behind any question about the justification for studying in a time of crisis. Every Christian who goes to university, he said, must ask him or herself, how is it right or even psychologically possible for creatures who are every moment advancing to either heaven or hell to spend any fraction of the little time allowed to them in this world on such comparative trivialities as literature or art or mathematics or biology. In other words, he said, the Christian has to recognize that it's what he called the permanent human situation to live always under the shadow of eternal life and death issues, whether it's wartime or jail time or school time. But he went on also to say that even with a consciousness of such eternal issues, it's an inevitable part of human life to be involved in cultural activities. It's human nature, he said, to search for knowledge and beauty even in the middle of crises and alarms. We could talk a lot about the concept of human nature, and I'm not going to do that here, but I'm conscious that it's a problematic concept, and there are ways in which he does approach that issue, and we could talk more about it. Anyway. In this case, if it's human nature, whatever level we mean that, and I think he's talking about unfallen nature at some level, the Christian can justify uh, searching for truth and beauty in crisis-ridden times 
only by doing it humbly and wholeheartedly. In other words, for the Christian, whatever times we live in, wherever we find ourselves, Christ's call is to engage fully in whatever activity we're called to, always to God's glory. Whether we're called to the noble cultural activities, he calls those the work of a Beethoven. I don't know if any of you are feeling like you're called to that. Which means a domestic cleaner. For the Christian student, Lewis said, this means accepting study as a vocation from God to be lived dutifully and with humility. Since a cultural life, he said, will exist outside the church, whether it exists inside it or not, the work of those who are called, even for the short time of an undergraduate degree, like most of you, to what Lewis termed the learned life, will be to offer a service through your learning in the humanities, answering what he called bad philosophy with good, and muddy heathen mysticisms, his phrase, with cool intellect. In particular, he pointed out, and the historians among you will be thrilled about this, that gaining a careful and detailed knowledge of the past can provide a foil to the fashions and assumptions of the present. He sees this as a duty which those studying in university are called to fulfill. There's a historian called Timothy Larson at Wheaton College, and he's written more recently this. The historical record gives us a way to grapple with the capacious human capacity for mixed motives, self-deception, blind spots, unintended consequences. And what Lewis is implying is that that kind of grappling is both a duty and a service. Well, learning is a duty, thinking is a vocation, those aren't attitudes I find my students immediately recognizing or taking up. It's much easier, isn't it, to see learning and thinking as instrumental to getting a grade and then a course and then a degree. If you get the degree, you can get the job, you hope, and so the paycheck and the house and the family and the vacations and you're set for life, no? Well, no, in fact. That kind of approach is awfully close to Booth's description of the rat in the maze, or the ant in the anthill, or indeed Althusser's description of the workings of ideological state apparatuses. As a Christian student, you are called to bring your mind to bear on the thinking of the past and the issues of today as a servant, who may be able to strengthen good thinking and trouble poor thinking, both in your studies and in the fruits of those studies taken out into the world. And then perhaps the nature of the coveted job itself needs some cool rethinking. Perhaps the income that you had assumed as a right may come to seem a particular Western privilege that God may even ask you to forego. We could think of a parable about that, couldn't we? that rich young ruler springs to mind. But perhaps this kind of attitude among the salaried professionals amongst us might be one of the ways we could make a difference with groups like the International Justice Mission that was petitioning on campus today. In a New York Times opinion piece on May the 24th, 2012, so last summer, Senior columnist David Brooks questioned the value of the drive in our postmodern culture to business credentials divorced from a liberal arts perspective and a firm moral foundation. This is why students in business at a college like Geneva are in a much better place than people who are studying in a business school per, per se or a business department elsewhere. Here's part of what Brooks wrote. Whatever field you go into, you will face greed, frustration, and failure. You may find your life challenged by depression, alcoholism, infidelity, your own stupidity, and self-indulgence. So, how should you structure your soul 
to prepare for this. Simply working at Amnesty International instead of McKinsey, and I had to look up that that was the Global Management Consulting Fund, is not necessarily going to help you with those primal character tests. Furthermore, he goes on, how do you achieve excellence? Around what ultimate purpose should your life resolve, revolve? Are you capable of heroic self-sacrifice, or is life just a series of achievement hoops? These are not, he says, analytical questions about what to do. They require literary distinctions and moral evaluations. Contemporary university students, he says, tend to convert moral questions into resource allocation questions. Questions about how to be into questions about what to do. And he says we've got to think more about how to be than just what to do. I like this last one. It's worth noting that you can devote your life to community service and be a total schmuck. You can spend your life on Wall Street and be a hero. Understanding heroism and schmuckdom requires fewer Excel spreadsheets, more Dostoevsky, and the Book of Job. A couple of pictures, just for emphasis there. Brooke's concern here is with structuring your soul and finding ultimate purpose, considering how to be and not just what to do. He wants students to understand the difference between heroism and schmuckdom, whatever they do with their lives, whether in Lewis's times it's the work of a Beethoven or the work of a charwoman. How interesting that his conclusion is that students, did you notice, need to read more. Okay. Like Brooks and Lewis, I will affirm that I'm sold on the value of reading good books. I'll say more tomorrow morning about the way in which literary and philosophical and classical and even scientific texts can engage and stretch our imaginations. They can reflect our lives back to us. They can help us to see from other people's points of view, even in other times and places. And if our wills are so inclined, reading texts like those can so help us directing our wills towards that state of productive peace and harmony that the Bible calls, anybody know? Shalom, thank you. <coughs> and that we might call the ultimately good society. Of course, there could be profound disagreements about the nature of that good society, depending on worldview, cultural norms. As Eagleton colorfully puts it in After Theory, <coughs> the history of moral philosophy is littered with rusting abandoned models of the good life. You see a sort of junkyard of old cars, you know? He says that's all these abandoned models of the good life. <coughs> but though in practice we would require detailed and complex contextualizations, the Judeo-Christian notion of shalom, I think, does hold out a good model for us. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, a good model of harmonious community that I think offers a good starting point for a wide spectrum of, of people, not only believers, actually, but non-believers as well. <coughs> shalom involves harmony with the self, harmony with others, harmony with the environment, harmony with God. And it presumes an ethic of service and self-giving. <coughs> but note the condition for reading that directs us towards Shalom. If our wills are so inclined, even addressing a church congregation, even, can you imagine, Lewis was ever the realist about the human will. In learning in wartime, and drawing on his background in classical literature and in medieval studies, he went on to describe three enemies of not just wise future action, but also present attention. Three enemies of our studies. Have you ever felt like the guy in that picture? Especially at the end of the semester, you know. Three enemies of our studies that though they are particularly powerful in times of war, he says they're always present in some form. And as if to confirm Lewis's description, these three enemies are more or less parallel 
to those three working life problems that Brooks mentions 70 odd years later. Greed, frustration, failure. So it's a relief that Lewis also offers you three mental exercises that can serve as defenses against these enemies. Number one, excitement. The inability to concentrate on the work at hand because of outside distractions. Not only the business of war, but also the everyday problems of quarreling with your girlfriend, or he doesn't say this, I'm telling you what he means by it, right? Getting a poor grade, or illness, you know, your sinus is hurt, or the demands of your sports team. At Redeemer, a lot of practices for sports teams seem to happen at 10 o'clock at night after night classes. I think this is disastrous, but you understand the problem, when else are they going to do it, right? I don't know if you have these issues here too. Lewis argues that the best defense <laughs> is the recognition that in fact, favorable conditions never come. So we just need to do the best we can against these ever-present rivals to our work, whatever it may be. I wrote my doctoral dissertation in a house with two small children. I went back to school when I had little kids. This is how come I've got the whole package, you know, I've managed to have the kids and the family and the doctorate and the academic work. Anyway, kids with, uh, two little kids and a husband who was away quite a lot. I was really greedy to produce stunningly good academic work. But in the end, my supervisor said I needed to accept that I had produced the best I could do under the circumstances. That was very humbling. Favorable conditions never come. Second enemy of studying says Lewis, frustration, by which he meant specifically the anxiety that we won't have time to finish properly whatever it is we've begun. Are any of you the kind of student who never finishes anything because you're afraid it won't be good enough by the time you get to the end of it? I get so frustrated by those students. They're often A students who end up with Ds because they will not give in their work because they're afraid it won't be good enough. You know? Anyway, frustration. The mental exercise that Lewis offers here as our defense is the need to recognize that the present is the only time in which any duty can be done or any grace received. We need consciously to live and work in the present and leave the future to God. As Jesus says, let the day's own trouble be sufficient for the day. Don't always be worrying about tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. I'm an anxious person. I'm learning to trust that if I get on with what I have to get on with, God will look after what I can't get on with. Third enemy, fear. Especially evident, obviously, in the time of crisis of war. Or any of you who have family members who are members of uh, an overseas military expedition at the present time. Particularly fear of pain and death. I find Lewis's defense here very bracing, and it may surprise you unless you clued in that Lewis was a medievalist, in which case you'll expect what's about to come. He says, since 100% of us are going to die, we might merely recognize that war makes death real to us. And that would have been regarded as one of its blessings by most of the great Christians of the past. They thought it good for us to be always aware of our mortality. That kind of awareness, Lewis says, gives us a healthy perspective on finite human culture and its possibilities and turns us again to divine realities as the only true grounding for our lives. Perhaps those Brazilian prisoners are being shown a way to turn their fear to good account. 48 days fewer in jail for anyone who will submit to the disciplines of reading and reflecting. Perhaps we could all benefit from a touch of that kind of fear. As I get older and I seem rather often to hear about the deaths of friends and acquaintances, I'm learning a bit about the discipline of living with joy in the present. Otherwise, what's the point of having this gift of life at all? Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and have it in all its fullness. So to live in fear of death is to fail to appropriate the good news of the gospel in Jesus. So, that's Lewis's essay, written 75 years ago, drawing on ancient wisdom 
addressed to a largely white male elite audience at one of the most prestigious universities in the world. Can it help my students, who are largely white, middle class, second gener generation immigrants in Canada, first generation university students, in a tiny Christian liberal arts college, only 30 years old, in southwestern Ontario? Can it help them know how to respond wisely to riots in London, or famine in Africa, or political turmoil and armed conflict in the Middle East, or financial crisis in the US, or in France, or even homelessness on the streets of Hamilton, my city, or Toronto, or Pittsburgh? In a direct sense, Lewis's essay probably can't help, but it doesn't even bring 48 days fewer of student debt, which is a very big issue for students in my part of the world. I don't know how it is for you. But indirectly, I think Lewis's essay does help. It helps Christian students who take in his arguments be more inclined to value their task as students beyond the utilitarian business of getting a degree to improve their job prospects. That's not why you get a degree. It's part of the result of getting a degree. You might be encouraged to recognize your scholarly vocation as a God-given service to others, however far removed from the present term paper a notion of service may seem to you right now. You might also recognize that the enemies of your work as students are not unique to you. These are the enemies of all productive enterprise in this world. So, as a student who takes Lewis's arguments on board, you will have a rationale for the kind of reading and thinking which enables you to look beyond the immediate situation, both to its causes and to analogous situations in the past. What's more, you will come to understand the importance of recognizing how a person's worldview affects their conclusions and how the dominant assumptions of any age affect the policies that its leaders enact and the goals that its citizens are encouraged to strive for and the happiness that its authorized spokespeople urge them to seek. I would also ask you to think, for instance, about the worldview behind most of our commercial advertising, what it's trying to sell you as normative values in our society, or the worldview behind most of the TV soaps that you might watch, or most of the movies that you might go to. What are the values that those things are trying to sell you? Um, worldview affects your conclusions, and it's really life-giving and, and important to recognize that. Okay. Oh, I think I have a picture. Oh, no. Okay. Just a second. Wait. Reading for the Good Society. I need to blow my nose before I tell you about reading for the Good Society. So as I do that, you can turn to the person next to you and think, what is the book or video or even song that has most made me think about how to help society? Go. Okay, if we had time, I'd love to ask you what those answers were, but you can continue that conversation later. Um, I have about 10 more minutes to go, and I don't want you to all fall asleep on me before you get to go home, so let's keep going. Lots of this kind of reading and thinking, the sort of reading that can help you to think about the good society, or listening or even watching, that can help you to think about the good society, happens in humanities classrooms. 
Because I'm an English professor, I'm going to illustrate with some stories and essays from my own teaching. But I believe that you can replicate my list with examples from whatever discipline you like. So, though I mainly teach more recent materials, I think of reading an ancient fable like Echo and Narcissus, or a classical Greek tragedy like Oedipus Rex, with students for whom the resonance of the past and the present has barely yet got on their radar. And they're absolutely amazed to discover that narcissism and the Oedipus complex have very long genealogies. They have no idea that these things connect back that far. I think about the way in which I've seen non-specialist first-year students respond to the personalized dilemmas in a medieval morality play like Everyman. Anybody read Ed Everyman? Or John Donne's Meditation 17 from a time of personal crisis way back in 1624. No man is an island entire of itself. Some of you know that one? Okay. I think of the impact of reading about Robinson Crusoe when he's catechizing Man Friday in Defoe's famous early novel of that name, 1719. And Crusoe's trying to work out how to respond when Friday says, well, why doesn't God just convert the devil? And he pretends that he couldn't hear him because he doesn't know what to say. Anyway. I think of the dilemmas of Jane Eyre. Who's read Jane Eyre? That's a novel for your summer reading if you haven't read it yet. She's caught between the fires of passion and the ice of reason. You know, it's what that novel's all about. I think about Rudyard Kipling's poem, The White Man's Burden, 1899, which articulates now rather shocking assumptions and struggles of an earlier Western moment in interacting with less advanced cultures. In the literature of the 20th century, which is where I spend most of my time, I think about reading the searing war poetry of Siegfried Sassoon and Wilfred Owen, giving students insights into the ghastliness of the First World War that nothing else can do in that way. Have you read that poetry, any of you? Or, finally, reading Graham Greene's short story, The Second Death, 1935, undermines Christian students' expectations about the future behavior of the recipients of Jesus' miraculous healings. I'm not going to tell you more than that, but you can only read this story intelligently if you know the Bible well. And it's stunning. I think about Shirley Jackson's story, 1948, The Lottery, describes a town in the grip of a deadly custom whose validity no one questions. It's actually, I think, a sort of early run-through for the Hunger Games. So, you make that connection. Or I think about Alan Payton's Cry the Beloved Country, also 1948. Painfully beautiful look at the suffering of both blacks and whites in apartheid South Africa. Or James Retty's fable, A Watch in the Night, also 1948. Very humbling, places the entire history of humankind in the last minute of a year-long movie which, uh, which shows the development of the universe. I think of Achebe's novel. Anyone read this one? Um, Things Fall Apart, 1958. Brings to life the culture of a Nigerian tribe prior to the arrival of the white man. Very powerful book. I think of reading Rachel Carson's explosive Silent Spring, 1962, with students who are concerned about how to take a responsible approach to the environment. I think about Joy Kagawa's novel, a Canadian novel, Obasan, 1981, dramatizes the plight of Japanese-Canadian internees in World War II. There are, of course, equivalents in the States for you. This is with students who have never heard anything about that sobering part of Canadian history before. I think of the profound effect of student responses, or the profound student responses that I get to a piece like Henri Nouwen's essay, Adam's Peace. Have any of you read anything by Nouwen? Okay. Uh, one of the initiators of a movement called Daybreak, which works with uh, mentally handicapped individuals in homes. This particular piece describes the unaccountable value of a very severely handicapped life that brings peace to people around him. Now, none of those essays and stories tell students what to think. 
All of them require careful reading, thoughtful contextualization, considered response. None of those pieces is contemporary. I did that on purpose. Even the most recent of them is 25 years old. And the oldest, in other words, the most recent of them is older than most of you, right? The oldest dates back more than two millennia. But they all have resonance for contemporary being and contemporary doing for a consideration of what might constitute the good society and for what the reader's responsibility might be towards membership in that society. That's Graham Greene. That's uh, actually the movie of Cry the Beloved Country. I think it's 1998. It's not as good as the book, but it gives you some good imagery. Okay, just a little bit about reading beyond the text. I'm sorry to do this to you at this point in the evening. I just want to do a teeny bit of philosophy. Can you bear with me? Do you think you can handle it? Yes. You've got to impress me with the standard of Geneva students, right? That's important. Okay. So there are two recent philosophical approaches to reading that I find helpful. First, 20th century French philosopher Paul Ricoeur. Anyone? You have discoveries to make. He's very exciting. He has recalibrated the ancient notion of mimesis, which we probably all learned as the imitation of an action, right? That idea of mimesis. And what he is saying is that mimesis is not just one single representation of something, imitation of an action, but it's an, what he calls an arc of operations. It involves a sequence, the author, the work, the reader is mimesis to him. He calls it mimesis one, two, and three, actually. A text is prefigured in this vast kind of repertoire of symbols that we have. Then it's configured into a particular text by the author, and then it's transfigured by the reader's response. If this interests you, follow it up. It's really worth thinking more about. He says, mimesis is a structuring op operation that begins in life, is invested in text, and then returns to life, right? Life, all this place where we get the symbols from, text where we organize them, life where we act it out, or where we do something with what we've learned in the text. And then there's a second, oh, I think I had a picture of him, yeah. And there's a second one that I really like, and this is Wheaton literature professor Alan Jacobs, lovely book called The Theology of Reading. He distinguishes between a passive understanding and an active understanding of what you read. He says a passive understanding, one which leaves the speaker in his own personal context within his own boundaries, is in effect no understanding at all. An active understanding will enrich even the language that you use to speak in. Test one. There we go. Okay. I'll never be recorded if you want to be safe. All right, we're nearly there. I mean, we're nearly at the end, as well as this. I love this picture of the modern family. If you look carefully, you'll see that it's uh, generationally appropriate, shall we say. Can you notice what the guy's doing? What the woman's doing? I'm a little cross about that one. Come on, women read newspapers too, and guys occasionally read novels, but anyway. And then what the two student-aged people are doing in this picture. The Brazilian prisoners know very viscerally that an escape from the tyranny of the immediate is perhaps one of the key goods of a humanities education. They're going to get out of prison quicker if they read a bit more, you know? Even if reading can't in itself make us better people, at least it can extend the boundaries of our awareness, culturally, geographically, historically, emotionally, psychologically. We know that whether or not those Brazilian prisoners then engage in positive action, what side they take in the action they espouse, is a matter for the human will, and we might add, energized by the Holy Spirit. I'll say more about that tomorrow lunchtime. But in fact, I wonder sometimes whether students like you, regularly involved students, regularly enrolled, more privileged than those guys in the Brazilian jails, almost need more help 
than the prisoners to recognize that in our culture, which is a culture of instant gratification, instant communication, the immediate can be a tyrant. It devalues the past. It devalues the future. It's the enemy of living faithfully in the present. Reading can counter that kind of presentism. I once had a student who told me that in evaluation. Um, it wasn't a bad course, but I didn't like reading so many things by dead people. Think about that. The implication is the only important things that have been written in the history of the universe have been written while he's been alive. I find that terrifying. <laughs> That's presentism. Reading can counter that by showing us that the world beyond our immediate lives is real, important, relevant, not only on our own doorsteps, but also in other parts of the world and in the past of our own civilization and also those of others. Reading can counter racism, can counter sexism, can counter class bias by bringing to life people in situations that are quite foreign to your own context. I teach a course in world literature written in English, which is all about um, situations that most of the students in the class have never experienced geographically or psychologically, and it's very powerful, especially for Christians. Those kinds of awarenesses of the world beyond the immediate, beyond the present, enrich our experiences of the present, may even change our perspective upon our own experiences. So, it's true that reading widely in the text of the get practical solutions to present social problems. It's also true that the deepening of our compassion and understanding are in and of themselves insufficient to move us to wise action without some kind of concomitant predisposition to that kind of action. But Alan Jacobs talks about the Christian duty to read with respectful attention. He describes that actually as another form of love. And I would say that love is set fair in our reading to create a more thoughtful and sensitive and articulate public sphere where we can be aware of past or culturally distant crises and their context and the rhetoric that was around them and that that can inform how we react in the present. I like that picture too. Reading as a form of love, and this is my second to last slide. Perhaps loving attention in reading leads to what Eagleton, who's a, remember a Marxist, calls politicized love or reciprocity all round. He's also a covert Catholic. Jacobs makes the relationship of the reader to the text an explicitly ethical issue. Have you ever thought about that when you're reading? He says, the hermeneutics of love requires that books and authors, however alien to the beliefs and practices of the Christian life, be understood and treated as neighbors. I think that's revelationary to me. I think I just confused two words and I meant both of them. Revolutionary and revelatory, right? So revelationary is a nice word. Um, <laughs> the hermeneutics of love requires that books and authors, however alien to the beliefs and practices of the Christian life, be understood and treated as neighbors. Here's Esther McIntosh, president of the Federation of State Universities Councils in the US. This is what she said last year. Members of the public recognize that in order to move forward and shape a livable future, it is critical for us to try to understand other points of view. Learn how other people in other times and places have addressed issues that divide them and find the common ground that will allow us to live together productively. They understand that such an effort is critical if we are to maintain a democratic society. Isn't that fascinating? This is a comment by the president of the Federation of State University Councils in the US. And she's on the side of the humanities big time. So, though humanities can't save us, if we pay them respectful attention, as we might to our neighbors, they can surely help us to see the world in wholly fresh ways. And perhaps we may begin to envision what the ultimate salvation of our world, God's world, the good society, 
in all its rich variance and difference might actually look like and how we can be a part of it. I like the top left. If I'm ever stranded, I hope it's in a bookstore. Thank you very much. <laughs>